Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Human nature can get a little messy, but nature nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh generation laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula. For when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea, totally not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of 7th Generation. Find 7th Generation laundry detergent and fresh lavender and other scents at 7thGeneration.com. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. That is a false fact. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do. Leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com. You can also check me out on all the social media that the kids use to find out about our upcoming guests. And today, my friends, I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Hey, Bill. It's great to be here. Nice to join you, too. Uh, Of course, by join, I mean virtually, because these days I go pretty much, I don't know, nowhere. I don't think I've even seen the outside world today. And it sure doesn't feel like a healthy lifestyle being this sedentary. So I do this podcast and I do my best to, you know, stay active. I do. Uh, you move your arms. You wave your I, arms. I wave my arms podcast. around. Uh, I'm here in Brooklyn with my, my wife and two daughters. And we sometimes do this funky 1980s style dance video workout with Gilad Yankovlich, the, uh, the Israeli fitness instructor who's very, very 80s and spandex clad. Um, You're not kidding. I'm not kidding. This is this seriously is what goes on around here. We, you know, we're doing what we can, and I wonder, you know, is that enough? Do I really need to exercise at all? I want to talk to somebody who has some real answers about exercise. What does it do? Well, do Corey, we need it? You are virtually in the right place. Yes, our guest today is Dr. Daniel Lieberman. He is a professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University and author of the new book Exercised. Why something we never evolved to do is healthy and rewarding. Dr. Daniel Lieberman, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Dan? Please do. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. The premise of your bit is we never really evolved to do exercise. Like From an evolutionary standpoint, exercise does not fit. Is that correct? That's correct. So as the saying goes in talk shows, tell us about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, that kind of people often say, do a kind of a say what when I say that. But, uh, but here's what I mean. Physical activity is just moving, right? You know, getting up in the morning, brushing your teeth, going to work, 
hunting and gathering, whatever, you know, plowing a field, whatever it happens to be that you do to, to live by. And that's what people have done for millions of years, and that's what most animals do. Uh, but exercise is planned, voluntary, discretionary physical activity for the sake of health and fitness. Um, it's going for a five-mile jog in the morning to prevent heart disease or, or lifting weights to prevent your muscles from getting weak. And, and that's a very modern behavior. Um, we have plenty of evidence that until recently nobody did that, and we can also explain why that's the case. So you're distinguishing, and I love this, you're distinguishing between exercise and physical activity writ large. Yeah, I mean, right. exercise is a kind of physical activity. It's a special kind of physical activity. Just, I mean, look, there's so many things we do today that are ab abnormal from an evolutionary perspective, like reading, right? We all think it's normal to read, but nobody read until a few thousand years ago. Nobody. And until a few hundred years ago, only a small percentage of human beings read. And, you know, we, you know learning algebra and geology and geography and all the kinds of, oh, there's so many things we do today which are abnormal. doesn't mean they're bad, um, but they're abnormal. And I mean abnormal from an evolutionary perspective. And the other thing about exercise, so here's the, here's the analogy I like to use for folks, right? To, the, the thought experiment. Imagine we're, it's not a pandemic and we could actually go outside, right? And go to a mall or a subway stop or a, a God forbid, a, a, an airport, right? And there's a stairway next to an escalator, right? We have all been in this situation when there's one next to the other. There were no escalators in the Stone Age, but when you get to the bottom of that escalator stairway pair, there's that little voice inside all of us, all of us, which says, take the escalator, right? And that's an instinct. It's an instinct to save energy because for most of our evolutionary history, we struggled to get enough calories. And when there's a limit on something, right, you have trade-offs. You can only spend a minute once, right? You can only spend a calorie once. And if you spend a calorie on the, on the stairway, that means you're not spending a calorie on the only thing that, uh, that natural selection actually really cares about, which is having babies, Right, and so there's a so there's a trade-off. So when I was reading your book, it made me think about: Have we all been brainwashed by nature documentaries? <laughs> this is one of the first things I thought about when you watch the nature documentary. You know, the the lion is always running, and the gazelle is always running, and it's all action because, of course, if there weren't action, it would be pretty boring to watch the nature documentary. But that's not really what animals do most <laughs> of the time, is it? Yeah, well, especially carnivores, they just sit around all day. I mean, I've I've had the fun of spending a lot of time in Africa and watching animals, you know, especially carnivores, and they're extremely physically inactive. But here's an interesting fact: we evolved from creatures that are even more inactive than most animals. So, it turns out your average animal is reasonably active, more active than most human beings. Who's an average animal? A giraffe? Oh, you know, giraffes, various rodents, you know. People have measured physical, what's called the physical activity level. It's the total energy you spend in a day divided by your basal metabolic rate, the energy you spend just taking care of your body, right? And that ratio tells you basically how active you are. So most mammals are three. They spend about three times more energy total than, than, they're, than they're active. But primates and apes in general are couch potatoes. So your typical chimpanzee has a pal of about 1.4, 1.5. Same is true of gorillas. Half they're, of the uh, mammalian average. That's correct. They're, so they're, they're much less physically active. And, and, and humans, non-Western humans, so hunter-gatherers, subsistence farmers, people who don't have machines to do their work for them, have physical activity levels of around two. So we're, we're much more active than chimps and, and gorillas, about 25% more active at least, but, we're, but we're, we're actually not as active as most animals. And so we have, in our evolutionary history, we were selected to become more active than our closest relatives. Or we can outrun them because we are more active. 
we, we were selected to be more active in order to be hunter-gatherers. So chimpanzees live in, live in forests. They're surrounded by fruit. They spend about half their day eating. Um, they don't really do very much. Um, I've had the, 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 the fun of watching chimpanzees in the wild. And they're, you know, they occasionally run around and get excited, but, you know, do various, you know, climb trees a little bit. But mo- and they walk about two to three miles a day max. Um, and that's about it. But for the most part, they're basically very inert. But but to, to survive as a human being, you have to go out and get your food every day, right? You have to go out and find tubers and berries and hunt and whatever. And that's that requires physical activity, a fair amount of it. And so what happened is that humans were very, very active for, for millions of years. We can show that those activity levels go back at least two million years. And then all of a sudden, in a blink of an evolutionary eye, we invented all these machines. So no longer have to be active. So, so how do we prove uh, that two million years ago we were less or more active? Well, we, we have all kinds of evidence from the fossil record. We have evidence, for example, endurance running. We can see all kinds of adaptations for physical activity, like in, enlarged gluteus maximus and elongated tendons and, and uh, you know, shifts in our... Um, what about our, our feet? feet? Your stories. Well, yeah, I was just about to talk about it. So that's one thing that I, my lab has worked an enormous amount. We've got springs in our feet and short toes, all of which evolved around 2 million years ago that enable us to be runners. Um, but importantly, the other thing that happens around 2 million years ago is that we have the origins of hunting and gathering. So we have archaeological sites. We have the evidence for the first uh, scavenging and, carno- and and hunting. So we eating meat. We have evidence for tool making. And this entire system that evolved, and that system requires... And also increased body size and increased brain size, all of which require more energy. And so you can't, and they're living in more open environments. There's no way you can do that by just sitting around, right? So, so we have so a more separate, open environment like the savanna kind of situation. Correct, correct. So, so we have a multiple lines of evidence that at least two million years ago, our ancestors were kind of like the hunter gatherers that we see today. They're traveling reasonably long distances. They're digging up underground storage organs, and we have old digging sticks. We know, and we have uh, they're they're hunting. They're, um, and they're, they're, they're making tools, and they're, they've created this kind of way of life, the hunting and gathering way of life that's persisted for millions and millions of years. These hunter-gatherers built for running. Well, they're built for walking, first and foremost, right? Walking is the most fundamental gate that all, all humans... And, and your average hunter-gatherer, to get food today in an environment not unlike the environments in which our ancestors evolved, walks between 6 and um, 10 miles a day, every day. And what they're doing is they're walking out to places where they can get food, often underground storage organs like potatoes, right, or potato-like things, digging them up all for, for, for quite a few hours, or they're hunting, which involves running or walking, etc. And then they're bringing all that food back. They're, of course, eating some of the food there in the, when they're out foraging and hunting, and they're bringing some of it back. Um, and then they're, then they're in camp preparing all this stuff. And if you add it all up, we have evidence. So you put sensors on some of these folks, right, you, that they spend about uh, two and a quarter hours a day in what we call moderate to vigorous physical activity. That means their heart rate is a, a, at least 50% of their maximum heart rate. So they're, you know, so when you go for a brisk walk, that's a moderate level of physical activity. So they're spending a little over two and a half, you know, two and a quarter, two and a half hours a day being moderately active, getting less food. And they're, of course, doing lots of light activities as well during the day. And that was what you did every day, your whole life. There were no Sabbaths. There were no bank holidays. There was no retirement. You did it every day of your life until the end. And did you um, and, uh, did you ever play team sports? Yes, of course. And they also play. Yes. And did play they run around important. at at a higher uh, metabolic rate? 
Sure. So play is a very important uh, behavior that hunter-gatherers do. Every culture in the world has play. Play is important for developing skills and capacities and functional capacities. Dancing is important. So adults in every culture I know, as, a, as you saw, may have seen, there's a section in the book on, on dancing. Every culture in the world has what I call endurance dancing. So, so humans evolved to be physically active for two reasons. They evolved to be physically active when it was necessary to get food, and also when it was rewarding, socially rewarding, like it's like through play or fun. It became socially rewarding uh, because it had value. Playing games, learning learning to throw an atlatl or what have you had value, yeah? Absolutely. And so my one of my arguments in my book is that, that if we want to help people be more physically active, we need to take a look in the evolutionary mirror and help ourselves be physically active when it's either necessary or rewarding. And the most rewarding physical activities are social ones. That's the ones that people tend to enjoy the most. You're, are you talking about middle school dances? <laughs> yeah, did, did, we, did we all learn to square dance and why? Uh, yes, I remember those middle yes. school dances. Uh, Very uh, stressful, man. That those was were, some... yeah, those, I'm not sure in my case being a nerd and, you know, the last you know, I was very uh, socially awkward. I'm not sure if they were socially rewarding in my case. They I, were for some of I my classmates. To, I have to think that social awkwardness burns a lot of calories, though, because I, <laughs> I, I, I certainly felt like, you know, just uh, all that thinking and worrying, that felt very energy intensive. But this whole thing, I think about team sports writ large, that has to have something to do with hunting. Sure, I think I think I think sports or play, which is which is sort of a kind of team sports, in every culture has I think multiple functions, and one of them is to teach skills that were important for fighting or hunting. I have a section in the book about the the Tarahumara, who are a Native American group that um, um, famous for their running, and they have this ball game where they kick a ball, find it, kick it again, find it, and I have the sense from running with them because I've had the fun to participate in some of these races that those help train hunters to be trackers while running. Uh, so I think... I think How big is the ball? I read about this in that other book, Born to Run, right? It's about the size of a softball. And they kick it with their bare feet, right? No, no, they're not barefoot. That's one of the... There are some oh, that's myths a myth. That book. That's um, a myth. Oh, there's a cool. lot of myths I'm afraid about. about I actually call it the myth of the athletic savage. There's a lot of myths about... Um, about Native American. Wait, hold on. Tell, tell me more about the myth of the athletic savage. That's yes, interesting. Yes, the myth of the athletic savage. Yeah, I think, well, we have this idea that, um, uh, or it's sometimes promulgated, that um, that people who are uncontaminated by Western civilization are these amazing athletes, right? The Taramara run, you know, get out of bed and they just run 100 miles barefoot and they have no problems. And, and that, you know, if you and I were like that, we could just get out of bed and do this kind of amazing activity. But the, I think that's really actually kind of dehumanizing because the reason... The Taramara run these amazing races. Um, it's not because they're just natural, amazing athletes. It's because they care about it. The the book Born to Run doesn't mention um, that the that the main reason that they do these races is it's a form of prayer. It's spiritual. It, it's a social thing. It's very important to them. So they value it uh, just like we value, I don't know, baseball or or other things. And and it's hard for them. You know, it's. It's uh, they they have nausea and cramps and it's challenging and most of them aren't so good at it and there's only a small group of them that are actually these amazing runners. So how did you do, Dan? When you were running with them, were you in the middle of the pack? Were you at the back? Were <laughs> well, you at the front? so the way it works is there are these two teams. There are about five people on each team. There's there's a women's race and a men's race, and I've observed both, but I didn't feel comfortable participating in the women's race. But I participated in the men's race, and what happens is that there's a team of five runners on each you know team. 
And they, they're the ones who, who are allowed to kick the ball, but nobody else is, right? So what happens is that people just jo join in for a few laps. So these are about five-kilometer sort of laps. And you, know, you light the way, and you have fun, and you cheer them on, and you give them support and, and whatever. But uh, so I, I kind of ran behind others, uh, others and sort of enjoying the, the scene and, and sometimes holding a torch so people could see at night because these like, races sometimes go on in the night. Um, but I, I, I never... I was, I was, it would not have been appropriate for me to kick the ball. Yeah, how did you get invited in the first place? What's the process of, of sort of gaining trust and getting entry? Well, I was doing field work up there, and I was working with a wonderful colleague who, who, who lives and works with the, with the Tarahumara. And so Where, where's up there? In the Sierra Tarahumara, sometimes called the Copper Canyons, in, in the state of Chihuahua in Mexico. Uh -huh. It's very So remote, do you speak Spanish rural. well enough to get along? My Spanish is not so great, but we have translators. Um, a lot of the, the, the Taramara speak a language called Raramuri, which I definitely do not speak. And so we have to have translators to do some of this research. So you got up there and you started running with the pack? Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So the first time I went, actually, I, I, I described this in the book, but there actually was a moment when this book crystallized. And I had gone to um, Ironman in Kona, which is the championship triathlon. Right? It's a crazy race, right? They do... 2.4 miles of an open water swim, immediately rush onto their bikes, do a 112-mile bicycle ride across a lava desert, and then they, then they just do a mere marathon afterwards, and it's 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Pretty intense. And um, the fastest racers do this in a little over eight hours, and, you have to, and the slowest people have to get in under 17 hours by midnight uh, to finish. And it's impressive, incredible and to watch. And then um, I was sort of curious about this, why anybody does this and what are the consequences for not only health, but also your marriage and other things like that. And then I ended up uh, a few a few weeks later, I was doing some research in the uh, in Mexico with the Taramara. I was studying their biomechanics because I study running and I wanted to see how they ran. And as I was traveling around interviewing people and measuring people's biomechanics, I got a chance to see one of these uh, these races. They're called When you measure Hickory. a biomechanic, what are you measuring? I'm measuring, um, well, in the field, you know, of course, you can't do what we can do in my lab, but in the field, I've set up cameras, uh, high-speed cameras, and put markers on people and measure, how, measure the, the way in which they're using their body. I have a, a, a pressure pad that measures the forces. You know, I'm, I'm measuring the ways in which they're running, you know, how they're using their bodies when they're running. And I was also measuring their feet, curious about their feet, and measuring you know, foot strength and, and arch height and other variables that are important for foot health. Um, anyway, I met this... Um, elderly guy who I was told was a runner. Actually, I got to see him running a few days later. He was in his 70s. And um, I was interviewing, I, I, I was asking everybody more or less the same questions, you know, about how much they run, etc. And, and I was asking about how he trained. And I had been asking everybody about their training. And I kept running into trouble because when I was asking people about training, nobody seemed to understand the question. It turns out they don't have a concept of training. You know, nobody gets up, like this morning, I went and ran ran a bunch of miles, right, just to kind of, you know, keep up my running skills. But nobody um, but keeps a record, that. for example, in this culture. Nobody has a book where they keep track of how many miles to do so you can run a marathon someday. No, but they're, they, they're pretty aware of how much they're running when they run. But the point is that they don't run the way I do. They don't do it in the morning just to, tr just to train, just to practice. Their training is, is their hard life. They're farmers. They're really hardworking farmers. And so, anyways, I was asking about training and the, through this translator who was explaining that, you know, this gringo, you know, runs five miles every morning, you know, to kind of work on his ability to run. And he looked at me and he said, uh, you know, I didn't even need the translator to, to basically to understand what he was saying, but he said, why would anybody run if they didn't have to? <laughs> 
And here's a guy who does like 50 mile races, he, right? He said, the, he said the word schmuck in his language. More or less, yeah. Like, like this guy's crazy. Why? Why would anybody run if they didn't have to? And you know, I, I, I'm an evolutionary biologist who's interested in how and why our bodies are the way they are. And it, you know, suddenly struck me. Well, of course, right? What I do, running, exercise, the kind of running I do, is a very modern behavior. Um, so running may be very ancient. People ran to hunt. They ran for play. But um, but running just to kind of stay fit—that's a very modern behavior. And that was like the the moment when I realized, let's look at the at exercise through an evolutionary lens because we have all kinds of myths about exercise and one of them is we're told that if we don't exercise we're lazy there's something wrong with us and i think that's a terrible way to treat people stick around for more science rules after this Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Human nature can get a little messy, but nature nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh generation laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula. For when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea, totally not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of seventh generation. Find seventh generation laundry detergent in fresh lavender and other scents at seventhgeneration.com. Science Rules is back. How much exercise do you need to be healthy? And what, like, what, does, what does exercise really do for you? Oh, my God. Well, you, have, you need a few hours to answer that question. So let's do the first one, because the first one is the easier one. Because when you say, how much exercise do you need? That sort of betrays our kind of modern medicalized approach to exercise, that we treat it like a, like a, like a medicine, like there's a certain dose, right? And, and the answer is that there is no one dose, because for a number of reasons. First of all, there's, we're all different, right? Um, some of us are older and younger, and some of us are males, and some of us are females, and some of us have disabilities, etc. Some of us are more worried about heart disease. Some of us are more worried about osteoporosis. Some of us are more worried about Alzheimer's. You know, physical activity has different effects on different outcomes. And then the other issue is that it's not like a U, upside-down U-shaped curve with an optimum, right? It turns out that if you look at large data sets of physical activity on the horizontal axis, the x-axis, against some kind of health outcome on the y-axis, it generally the curve is a falling curve that flattens out. What do you mean? So the more exercise you get, the more healthy you are, or the more exercise you get depends? Well, so a little bit goes a long way initially. So if you do about 60 minutes a week on average for Americans, so this is data sets from the large epidemiological data sets over a, over a million Americans, getting about an hour a week of moderate to vigorous physical activity lowers your rate of dying by about 40%. That's adjusted for age. And then if you exercise 150 minutes a week, you get down to about 50%. And if you do like 300 minutes a week, you get down to like... 60%. And then eventually the, the curve flattens out and more isn't better. So you don't need to run marathon. Marathon is not going to give you any more benefit than say like a half marathon. 
put it in very crude terms, right? So it's there's no one point on that curve. So which which point on the curve do you want to point to, right? A little is better than none. More is better than a little. And eventually, even more. A lot has no, isn't so no, great. It doesn't have any or benefit. A, lot is not, big de- a whole lot is not necessarily better than a lot. A whole lot has no extra benefit, but there's a debate over whether or not you can do too much. So let's talk about too much. And then, of course, everybody's favorite topic I'd like to talk about. Me! I rode the Cannonball 300. So this is a bike ride. You leave Seattle, Washington at 3 a.m. And you have to get to Spokane, Washington, which is just a few kilometers, a few miles from Idaho by uh, midnight. If you don't get there by midnight, you don't get a t-shirt. Oh, no. (laughs) Wow, that would be bad, wouldn't it? So what motivated me to do this? The t-shirt, obviously. I mean, we have, there are all kinds of rewards for exercise that are, you probably didn't do it so that you would, uh, you know, die 10 years later, right? You're probably doing because it was fun. You probably did it because you enjoyed it, right? And, and, and again, it goes back to my you know, simple statement, which is that for most of human evolution, and still generally true today, most people are physically active either because it's they have to, right? It's necessary, or because it's rewarding. And and there are many different kinds of reward. The most common ones are social, but sometimes we have, you know, we're human beings and we come up with all kinds of crazy things. Um, those rewards could be spiritual. Those rewards could be monetary. Those rewards could be, you know, attracting people that you're attracted to, right? Um, there's lots of different kinds of rewards, but when we tell people... Go do it because you, so you don't die of heart disease 30 years later. That's a very intangible reward that people have a hard time following because we, we engage in what's called hyperbolic discounting, right? We, a bird in the hand is almost always worth two in the bush, right? So we hyperbolic you know, discounting. As the saying goes, tell us about that. Yeah. So the hyperbolic discounting is when we value the cost benefit differently based on time. You might say, well, you know, I'm not going to take the stairs today. I'm going to take the elevator because I'm going to because I'm tired and tomorrow I'll take the stairs. You're saying, oh, doing it in the future has more value to me than doing it at now. And we do that all the time. It makes sense from an evolutionary perspective because you don't know if you're going to be around in a few years, but you are going to be around now. So you might as well use that energy for what natural selection cares about, having babies, right? Or, or some other urge, right? So that's why every time we you know, approach that escalator, that little voice says, take the escalator, take the escalator. I mean, this happens to me in my building. I, live, I work in the Peabody Museum at Harvard. It's a big old Victorian building. My office is on the fifth floor. Every single day, I, want to, I have a little mental struggle to take the stairs, not the elevator. Every day, without exception. And the reason I take the stairs most of the time is not because it's, it's healthy. It's because if anybody catches me on the elevator, I'll be called out as a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> Did that ball-chasing game evolve out of peer pressure? Or maybe for sexual selection? Yeah, yeah. I think, remember that until recently... Obesity was essentially non-existent. If we look at those you know, populations like uh, you know, hunter-gatherers who don't grow food and they have to forage for their food every day, almost nobody's even overweight. So dieting is another modern behavior that nobody ever did in the past. And actually, it's very, one of the reasons it's so hard to diet is that there are all kinds of adaptations to prevent us from dieting, prevent us from losing weight. So we all are capable of using our rational, sort of slow brain, if you will, to kind of overcome instincts, but we do that for reasons that are, are, are often um, antithetical or uh, opposite to our, our, our basic impulses and urges, which, which have ancient evolutionary origins. So, so even though there were no elevators or escalators in the Stone Age, it is an, an essentially fundamental instinct uh, to 
try to save energy when you can. Yeah, so take you it can easy. Use that energy yeah. for other for other more important purposes like playing, or getting dinner, or avoiding being somebody else's dinner, uh, which can also be important. What else is exercising actually doing, and how do you know if you're modulating it? Let's say in an optimal way, <laughs> if you don't want to say in the right well, way. Well, let's avoid the word optimal because that's a yes. dangerous word. Yeah. That's like a red letter word to an evolutionary biologist. But the reason that there are many reasons that exercise is good for you. Now, if you talk to most doctors, they'll say the reason exercise is good for you is it's, it prevents bad things, right? It prevents cholesterol, it prevents too much blood sugar, etc. And that's true. But I think that the, there's an even more fundamental reason that exercise is good for us. And that, that's because exercise is a stress, but it's a good stress. So when you exercise, you're producing reactive oxygen species in your mitochondria, right? So mitochondria are little organelles in your cell that, that, that produce energy for your body, right? And, and reactive oxygen species are molecules with unpaired electrons that are highly reactive, right? That causes, causes rust, basically, or you know, the, the browning in your apple, right? That's all, that's all reactive oxygen species. So, so that's damaging, right? So uh, you produce heat, you produce all these byproducts. We call them metabolites. You produce, um, you crack your bones, you create tearing in your muscles, you pound your blood cells, you create all this damage throughout your body, everywhere, right? But it's a normal thing to do. All animals have to be physically active. And so our bodies evolved a multitude of mechanisms to repair and maintain our bodies in response to those stresses. We produce antioxidants that scavenge and get rid of all those reactive oxygen species. We produce enzymes that repair the damage to our DNA. We have all kinds of enzymes that get rid of all the metabolites, the waste products. The list is long. We repair things throughout our body, every tissue, every part of our body. And here's the thing. The same kinds of damage occur if you're just sitting around at a slower rate. But we don't turn on those repair and maintenance mechanisms just sitting. We turn them on when we exercise, when we're physically active. And because we never evolved not to be physically active, we never evolved to turn these repair and maintenance mechanisms on without being physically active, at least not to the same extent. I have a, a question that's very personally important to me. Is there a way to sit around and be healthier than just normal sitting around? Only a little bit. So there are better and worse ways to be sitting. So you, so more active sitting is good. So fidgeting, squirming, getting up every 10 minutes is actually much healthier than getting up every 30 minutes, for example. But but the fact of the matter is we'll never invent an exercise pill, right? There's, uh, there's no substitute because it's... The, the effects are so diverse and so manifold throughout the body. There's no way you can ever create it in a pill form. And, and, and here's the other thing, which is that those repair and maintenance mechanisms become more important as we get older. There was no retirement in the Stone Age, right? We evolved to live long and stay active as we got older because grandparents in the Stone Age were foraging and hunting and helping out their grandchildren, right? And that's actually the reason why we evolved to live so long. And uh, if you look at the data, the older you get, the more important physical activity is in terms of, of maintaining health. So, There's a charming irony there, perhaps. You know, people nowadays in our culture who retire become more active. They walk more golf courses. They and that, and take that's swim good. lessons. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, fat. Well, fat, so we have such a complicated relationship to fat. Fat is energy. Fat and Gotta fat have means it. fertility. You know, Gotta humans... Have Humans are unusual. So most animals have very little body fat. And most primates have very little body fat. And humans, even thin humans, so hunter-gatherer um, men have about 10 to 15% body fat, which is way more than almost any other mammal, except for seals and, you know, uh, marine mammals. And, and hunter-gatherer women 
have between about 15 to 25 percent body fat. So, and that is because of our we have a very unusual reproductive system. It's very expensive. Um, we have big brains that require a lot of energy. Fat is life for most human beings, and so uh, and most fat isn't unhealthy. So, uh, fat that's in your buttocks, fat that's you know basically fat that's not in your belly. Is actually very healthy fat. Um, it's uh, the problem is when you have huge amounts of we have too much of it when you're obese and you and especially when you when you have a lot too much of it in your midriff in your in your around your belly. We call that visceral fat or abdominal fat. That fat becomes uh, uh, disease causing. It's pathological because the fat cells swell. They attract white blood cells that start producing. Uh, inflammatory uh, molecules that cause a wide range of diseases. So, so having um, uh, a healthy degree of of you know uh, body fat is 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 health. It's good. And we've now in our modern world we have these kind of crazy ideas about what's attractive and what's healthy, and a lot of them are socially determined, um, and they're also very modern. Well, let me ask you some specific specifics. When you say you go out and measure people doing their things, uh, and then you compare it to what you measure in the field with what you measure in the lab. What exactly are you measuring? We do all kinds of things. So in my lab, we do we mostly study locomotion. So we've been studying running. So we've done a lot of work on how people run without shoes. And we look at how people carry. We look at how people... Um, we look how people sit. For example, we're doing a lot of work on sitting right now in my lab. We look at how physical activity affects the body um, in terms of... Uh, the molecules that you're producing that that prevent inflammation. We're looking at energetic trade-offs. We're looking at basically how people use their bodies in non-Western societies, and mostly walking and running, but other activities, and and comparing that to how we use our bodies in urban Western places like Boston to understand mismatches. You know, what are we adapted for, and in what ways are, are is the modern world good, and what ways is the modern world bad? So, for instance, are you videotaping people and, and monitoring the time they spend doing different activities or putting sensors on them to understand their biomechanics? What, what, what right. does your research actually look like? <laughs> well, it's, it's very varied. But yes, we put sensors on people. We Sometimes we, we construct kind of tracks and we have people run across the track or we set up a system where we're just re- measuring them high-speed cameras when they're doing their normal activities. Or we're measuring, you know, using an ultrasound, for example, to measure the size of muscles. Or, uh, you know, we, we use a variety of techniques to look at people's bodies and how they're using them and how much energy they're using, um, the forces that they're generating. Um. So something that's fascinated me is this idea of barefoot running. I read that book, Born to Run, where the claim is that your toes have all these fabulous properties that help you run. I know you have opinions about shoeless running. Can you talk about those? I'm not sure how to start because the book Born to Run is a is a um, uh, is Debunk constantly it. cited, Go crazy. constantly yeah. cited to me. Um, it's a popular book that actually started in my, to some extent, in my lab. We actually published a paper in 2004, many years before that book, on the cover of Nature that was entitled Born to Run, um, arguing that humans evolved to run, and then of course, if humans evolved to run. Uh, millions of years ago, they must have learned to run barefoot. So we started studying barefoot running many, many years ago. 
the the problem with barefoot running is the way it's been popularized as kind of um it's almost like the paleo diet this idea that yes that yes. somehow modern civilization has contaminated us and that if if you know shoes are coffins and somehow if you put a shoe on somehow you're 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 abnormal and there's something wrong with you and as i said before the taramara actually aren't barefoot ever, ever. they usually wear sandals um they're not like our nike shoes etc or you know fancy built up shoes but it's complicated because there are no simple answers. Um, I think that people shouldn't be scared of barefoot running. People have run for millions of years in all kinds of environments without shoes. You have to have calluses on your feet, of course, which you develop naturally. And if you have calluses on your feet and you learn to run properly, you'll be fine. You can because people have been fine. It's not there's nothing abnormal about it. So in this culture, do people do grown ups teach young people how to run? Well, I believe that running is a skill. I'm not sure if it's how much it's sort of taught in a very formal way. But for example, in many cultures, people, you know, we, I ask people everywhere I go about, you know, how do you learn to run? What's the right way to run? And they often say what, what we do, which is that, you know, oh, you know, I, Im I imitate the good runners, right? Um, we have, you know, in Kenya, for example, when people run in groups, they often run in like in a pack and people take turns being a leader and everybody behind that leader imitates him or her and tries to basically run with the same cadence, the same you know, in the same way. And so when you watch a group of Kenyan runners, they look like a, a flock of birds. Everybody's running in the same way. But in America, we have a much more individualistic attitude towards running. We don't believe running as a skill in the same way. And when you watch, you know, when I watch like the Harvard track team uh, running, you know, every, they all look different, right? No, nobody, they're not all running in sync. It's a very different uh, attitude towards running. So, I, so do you think that's a mismatch? Like, should we be more Kenyan? I believe that that running is a skill, and that we ought to teach people the skill of running more. And I think part of the and one of the reasons why so many athletes get injured is that they're they're not running very well. So, uh, what are some fundamentals? What should we what should we be working on as runners? <laughs> well, there's a good section on that in the book. I mean, it's not that hard a skill, but the key is um, to to not overstride. So, overstriding is when you stick your leg out way in front of you, and and when you do that. Right? For every action, there's an opposite, equal and opposite reaction. When you stick your leg out in front of you and plant it right in front of you, you're pushing it into the ground. The ground is pushing back at you, so you're creating this big force that is actually decelerating your body. And then you have to then re-accelerate your body. But you're also creating high of moments, high torques around your, around your knees that you then have to counter, and that causes, I think, knee injury. Um, you also... Um, you land hard on your heel generally that way, and that it causes a lot of exchange of momentum. So again, it's mass times velocity is momentum, right? And you have this big exchange of momentum with the ground, which creates a shockwave, which travels up your body. So good good runners run with their basically their ankles below their knees. Their feet are relatively flat. They have good posture, so they're upright they're instead of leaning forward, and they have a high cadence. So they run usually about 180 steps a minute. When you, and all that kind of, it's all correlated together, but that leads to a very light, gentle way of running that's very efficient, that turns out to use less energy, but also uh, creates less stress on your body. And coincidental, that all the world's best runners more or less run that way. But we don't teach people how to run that way. And, and shoes can affect that, because when you wear a cushioned shoe, you don't get any of that feedback, right? If you land really hard on your heel and you're barefoot, it's going to hurt, right? I think you don't even need to to do that experiment, right? If you were to get up right now and jump, right, you would not land on your heel, you'd land on the ball of your foot because that would cause less of an impact when you hit the ground. Landing on your heel, it hurts, right? And the only time people land on their heel is when they're wearing a cushioned shoe that enables them to do that. 
And so barefoot runners run lightly and gently, and I think that's one of the skills of running. But the point is you can run that way with a shoe on too, right? It's just that being barefoot helps you learn that skill. Uh, it's like a free coach. And you, can run ter- <laughs> and you can run terribly barefoot. I know people who, who transition to barefoot running, they don't learn to run properly, and of course they injure themselves, right? It's really how you use your body, and that's what matters. I have a couple specific questions based on things. I have bunions because the sort of triangle that holds my feet up is slowly smushing down into smushness. And then a, a longtime friend of mine now runs the shoe room at the New York City Ballet. But when she was dancing as a ballerina, she was sought after because she has very high arches. So I have smashing arches. She has very high arches. Do you have an opinion about the success of runners depended on their arches. Well, you've come to the right guy. <laughs> I've published a lot on this. So both a very low arch, which is, it sounds like well, that's what you have, right? What we call a flat foot, right? And a high arch are both uh, problematic, but for different reasons, very different reasons. And it turns out that people, high arches are much more rare. Um, but people who get low arches, and almost about a third of Americans have flat feet, have low arches, turns out that's almost non-existent in, in, in barefoot populations. And we think that's because of foot strength. Because shoes um, enable your foot to be weak. When you're wearing a shoe, you don't have to basically use the muscles in your foot as much. And, and so muscles, bike shoes, bicycle shoes, which have rigid soles, that's like the worst thing. They're just probably like, the worst thing, exactly. Yeah. And so people who, uh, who are barefoot or habitually barefoot or wear minimal shoes tend to have stronger much muscles in their feet. And those muscles dynamically helps support the arch and that helps the uh, and the arch is very important in running because the arch acts as a spring when you're running you're basically jumping from one leg to the other and elastic you're storing up and releasing elastic energy like a pogo stick and so good runners are good pogo stickers basically they're using their legs like pogo sticks and the shoe is actually a really important spring about 17 percent of the mechanical energy of your body hitting the ground is stored up and released just by your arch and your foot alone which is pretty amazing now High arches, what your ballerina friend has, is very unusual. Again, almost non-existent in barefoot populations. And a high arch is very problematic because those tend to be really stiff feet. And of course, stiff things don't act very well as springs. So it may be good if you're a dancer and you're trying to do a pirouette and you're doing something really weird that on a stage with a, with a piece of wood in your foot so you can stand on your toes, which is kind of, you know, looks good, but it may not be healthy for you. But that's a very special and unusual human behavior. And she had to retire through injuries. And, yeah, so uh, ballerinas have terrible foot injury issues. Absolutely. Science Rules will be right back. Human nature can get a little messy, but nature nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh-generation laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula. For when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea, totally not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of seventh-generation. Find seventh-generation laundry detergent in fresh lavender and other scents at seventhgeneration.com. You're listening to Science Rules. Is sitting much worse for you than standing? So, you know, we've demonized sitting as being the new smoking. And it turns out that 
uh, as I discuss in the book, hunter-gatherers sit 10 hours a day, like a lot of Westerners. But they tend to sit more actively, so they don't sit with chairs with backrests, and they get up a lot. So sitting is obviously not as bad as smoking, and I think it's kind of silly to call sitting the new smoking. Um, but if you, it's the only thing you ever do, because you're not also physically active some of the time. That's the problem, right? And so it turns out that it's, 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 it's leisure time sitting, which is mostly associated with negative health outcomes, not work time sitting. So let's, uh, let's be a little bit less. I mean, the reason I call the book Exercise is that we make people exercised about physical activity. We make them anxious and nervous and confused by all this kind of myth-making and simplification that, um, that we engage in. So is there such a thing as good sitting and bad sitting? So I love the history of sitting. So I'm actually quite interested in that because until recently, until the, until the Industrial Revolution, chairs with seatbacks, I see that you're sitting now and you're resting, you're leaning back, you're probably slouching a little bit. You've got your, yes. probably your foot, you're, you're leaning back and you're- And you're I fight it all the time. I constantly set myself back up. Right. Well, ever since a, a German orthopedic surgeon named Stiefel told everybody in the mid-19th century that you should sit the way you stand, we've been told not to slouch. And I got interested in this because it turns out there's all kinds of bad data claiming that the stresses on your back were greater when you slouch. But if you go to look at people sitting, like squatting and hunter-gatherer, you know, places where there's, you know, villages where I work where there are no chairs, right? They're all slouching, right? There's, so what's the big deal, right? There's, you know, they have curved upper backs and they have flattened lower backs, which is what happened when you slouch. And it turns out that when you look in the literature at the correlation between slouching and back pain, there is none. Study after study after study after study <laughs> has shown that that if you slouch, you're not actually more likely to have back pain. I mean, talk and about what, a myth that I was raised with right there, man. So it all came from that one original study? Is that where well, the myth? That's where it started. That's where that's where the idea started. And then, of course, we keep promulgating this. Now, it turns out it's, it's a little bit more because we've confused cause and effect. People who have strong backs are, are able to sit upright without using their backrest because they've got a lot of strong strengthen their abdomen and their backs, and they're able to keep maintain stability. So having a strong back turns out to be the best predictor of whether or not you are likely to have back pain. So people with weak backs are much more likely to have back pain. And How do we get a, a strong back, back? Well, by 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 using it, by carrying things, by by also by not sitting in chairs with backrests, all kinds of things. So using it, right? Use it or lose it. Muscles are muscles atrophy if you don't use them. So we've conflated cause and effect. So people who have weak backs are more likely to slouch, and for that reason, people with weak backs are more likely to have back pain. But it's not the slouching that causes the back pain; it's the weak back. So if you have a strong back but you want to slouch, go ahead. It's fine. There's no evidence that it's going to be bad for you. So I carry things. Do I do chin-ups? Do I do pull-ups to get a strong back? What do I do? I don't know. I mean, I mean, we're we're, we're studying that. I don't. I mean, you know, sit-ups are good and carrying things. Look, think about the. You know, when when you get water, like how do you get water? Or how do you fill your glass? Oh, from a sink, a spigot. You, yeah, you go to a, a tap. You turn the tap and. Whoosh, As opposed to going water. to the stream and kneeling down. Right. That's like a very. That's like a, that's only a few hundred, a hundred years or so that most of us, most people, had to go to pumps. You know, before that and before that, they had to carry it. You know, we don't carry anything anymore, right? We don't carry water. We don't carry firewood. We don't carry our babies. We don't carry food. We when we go to the supermarket, we have, we have shopping carts. We carry nothing, and or we carry it maybe from our car, from our supermarket entrance to the car. That's the maximum we carry anything, right? And of course, when you're carrying something, you're using the muscles in your back. 
So there are all kinds of things that we do or we don't do, right, in our modern world that are very, very abnormal, that change the way our bodies function, that change our vulnerability to a wide range of diseases, including lower back pain. Here's a big thing I've been wondering through this whole conversation. How did you get into this field? Why did yeah, you become yeah. the the exercise guy? <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what, what leads a person down that path other than walking down that path? It's an interesting story. So I started off, well, it's interesting to me at least. So I started off as a head guy. So when I started my career, I was studying how and why human heads are the way they are and um, you know why we don't have brow ridges and why we have chins and how our faces grow differently from Neanderthals and things like that. And I, was, I, was, and I got really interested in the problem of how we hold our heads still when we run. It was experiments on that that I got connected with my colleague at U- University of Utah, Dennis Bramble, and, and we ended up studying how and why we keep our heads still uh, when we run. And we figured out there's the interesting novel mechanism that humans have that other animals don't that leaves a trace on the skull. We could see that trace two million years ago, and that led to our writing this paper, the Born to Run paper in Nature in 2004. So I started writing, working on the evolution of running because of my interest in heads. And, but I was always a jogger because my mother was a runner when I was a kid. And that paper really got me more interested in my running, and my running got me more interested in the science of running. So I was working on running and barefoot running, and meanwhile I was working on heads, and and I realized that the work on the evolution of physical activity had a lot of important relevance to to to, to the world, you know, to people other than academics, and that we're not taking an evolutionary anthropological perspective to physical activity and exercise. And I sort of transitioned my career sort of slowly towards towards running and walking and carrying and all these things because I think I think that I can hopefully have some benefit. I can I can make the world a better place. And I think that we've medicalized and commercialized exercise to the exclusion of of thinking about it in other important ways. And and I would like to sort of help us think more broadly and more compassionately and more rationally about these topics that really confuse people and and that makes people exercise. That's why I entitled the book Exercised. Part of the reason I was able to quit my day job and pursue a career in television was through the success of a character I played called Speedwalker. Now, most superheroes will fly to the crime, they'll run, uh, but Speedwalker would race walk. He would do heel-toe all the time, heel-toe, that was his thing. Is that not natural then? Because you're reaching with your heel. Yeah, race walking is interesting. So race walkers are walking at a speed when, when it's actually more efficient to run. That's what made it fun. Um, I, my freshman roommate was a race walker in college, and I would, um, it was fun to go running with him. Um, but race walkers really injure themselves. They have high injury rates because they're putting a lot of stress on their bodies. Um, it's actually, it's gone from the Olympics now. I, I, or it's gone from most, um, most uh, college athletics, excuse me, because it's actually so injurious. Uh, it's, uh, it's becoming less common. Uh, it's not a very sensible thing to do. And furthermore, they have this idea, there's a myth. People have taken high-speed videos. So race walkers are supposed to always have one foot on the ground. And actually, when you take high-speed videos, you f- it turns out that <laughs> they all have an aerial phase. Um, it's just that the, 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 the umpires just can't see it. And it's very arbitrary who gets, who gets uh, eliminated and who doesn't. I remember in college taking dynamics. This is regular old mechanical engineering. That walking is crazy efficient. It's like barely 30 watts to get a person to walk. But if you get the very best Honda robot, Akimo, whatever the guy's name is, he's like at 1,500 watts. Is that true? 
Yeah, walking is extremely efficient. We exchange energy in this elegant, beautiful way. So in a walk, you're using your leg like a stilt, right? So during the first half of stance, you put your leg on the ground, you basically you raise your center of mass, your body up, and you're storing up potential energy, right? And then in the second half of stance, you let your body fall forward. And you get that energy back for free as kinetic energy, right? You're, you're dropping, right? And then you have a collision, right? Your foot hits the ground and you lose some of that energy. And that's why you have to use more muscle to push your body up against to, to compensate for that energy loss. But we don't lose that much energy. We lose about 30% of the energy. So walking, you're quite right, is an extremely efficient way of moving. Um, and, uh, and we're really good at it. When you're running, you stop using your leg that way. And you start using your leg like a spring. So instead of kinetic and potential energy being going opposite to each other, they go together. And now you're, instead of storing up and releasing potential energy, you're now using elastic energy. So when you hit the ground when you're running, instead of your, your, your body going up in a run, your body goes down, right? And you flex your hips, you flex your knees, you flex your angles, and you're stretching the tendons in your legs. This is what you talked and, about early on, the, the, and, the and adaptations, yeah. Yeah, and you're stretching the tendons in your foot. And that stores up elastic energy. And then, and the, then those, all those springs recoil and push you up into the air along with your muscles. It's a lot of very smart biomechanics. And yeah, it's very smart biomechanics. And it turns out that running, here's two fun facts. Running is only about 50% more expensive than, than walking. 50% is a lot though. That's not so much because walking is pretty efficient. Walking is pretty efficient. So it's not that bad. But here's the cool thing. If you're in, not sprinting. So if you're in the endurance range, right? So you're, you're, you can run under aerobic metabolism, right? So you're not panting heavily, right? But you're just, you're able to maintain steady state. If you run 20 miles at, at a slow speed or 20 miles at a fast speed. So if I run from here to New York City at three meters a second versus four meters a second, I, to get to New York, I spend the same amount of energy. There's no cost to going faster. It's what we call a flat cost of transport. Wow. Um, yeah. The whole, it's all really cool, but that's especially cool. It's especially cool because as you go faster, you're using your leg as a better spring. And there's only one other animal that we, that we know is as good as humans at being so efficient at running at different speeds. And I'm going to ask you to guess what it is. An elephant. No. I'm going to go with a horse. No, not a horse. Horses have a, a U-shaped well, curve. Okay. Everybody loves cheetahs. I mean, who doesn't love yeah, a cheetah? Yeah, cheetahs are good sprinters, but they're not good at endurance yeah, running. That, yeah, they uh -huh. never prosper. So, Corey, who's an endurance runner out there? Think springs. What's a good springy runner? A springbok. Uh, a, uh, a kangaroo. A kangaroo. Ka kangaroo. There you go. It's kangaroos. Can a human outrun a kangaroo? Yes, actually. And there's evidence that people can and do. Can a human outrun a horse? I've, I've done it myself. How far did you have to go to outrun a horse? Uh, 25 miles. But wow. yeah, no, humans, um, I describe it in my book. It's called Man Against Horse. And I, I participate in one of these races. And I'm not a great runner. I'm a middle-aged professor. I'm not, I've never won anything. But um, there were well, 53 horses. Apparently you have. Horses. You've, you've, you've won a race against a horse. Well, yeah. So there are 53 horses and 41 runners. And I beat all but 13 of the horses in this, in this race. And they got a rest stop, which was subtracted from their time. And I didn't. So why is that? We're just set up for it. <laughs> because we have all kinds of amazing adaptations, not only to run, uh, like which horses do it too, but also to keep, to cool down. We're the champion sweaters of the animal world. And so horses overheat. That's why we lost our hair. Is that right? Uh, compared to our, I, that's, our colleagues that's I believe, in the primate yeah. world. All right. So here's a fundamental thing. Like from time to time, I lift weights. You can walk every day, run every day, ride your bike every day, but you can't Every day can't be a leg day. Every day can't be 
We have uh, an email from Malcolm Katzen about this very issue. How you can do cardio every day, but you can't do specific muscle groups every day. Why is that? Well, it depends on how hard you're training those w- muscle groups. If you do serious weight training, right, you're you're stressing your muscles, and those muscles then have a have a have a complicated response to repair themselves. And if you do it every day, you'll damage yourself. Um, but if you're doing plain old cardio, you're not putting the same stress on the muscles, and so the the gen- the stresses are just more metabolic and more and less specific. So. You know, serious weight training, you can't do too much too often. And, and, you know, we have this idea that you have to do have no pain, no gain, right? That's a kind of a, a, you know, if you want to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, sure, most of us don't need to do that in order to stay reasonably strong. So you're, it sounds like your message is roughly all things in moderation, including exercise. Yeah, let's stop making each other exercised about exercise. Let's stop blaming each other for, you know, shaming each other for, for the disinclination to be physically active. Let's be more supportive. Let's help make it necessary, but also socially rewarding. Let's, let's stop, you know, demonizing sitting and other sorts of normal things. You can't exercise all day long. There's nothing abnormal about sitting uh, unless that's all you do. Let's not get all our advice about exercising from elite athletes and, and, you know, let's stop viewing exercise as simply a form of medicine and, and, uh, or something to make money off. Uh, it, physical activity is part of who we are and it keeps us healthy and it's rewarding and it's fun. And we make it so unfun. We make it so, so laden with, with, with confusion and negativity. And, and I think we, if we take an evolutionary anthropological perspective, we can, we can do much, much better helping each other and make the world a much healthier place. Woo! Right. Woo! Yes. I, I hey, Corey, Corey, Corey. I love a good polemic. And wait, I hear something. It sounds like the... Do you hear that? Yeah, it sounds like the thundering of, 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 of horses' hooves or, or the thundering of... Oh, the thundering of thunder. It sounds like a thundering of thunder, which means, Dan, that it's time for the lightning round. On a scale of one to 10, how do you rate your own fitness? In terms of cardio, I would say eight or nine. In terms of strength, I would say about three. <laughs> there you go. So all in, you're about average. Uh, has your research made you healthier and more fit doing all yes, this? Yes, absolutely. In what way? Um, well, I've, I've done more strength training, and also I, it's helped me become a marathoner, and, and I'm pretty careful. I, I don't compromise on either sleep or, or, or exercise. I, I care more about it than I used to. Are Americans getting uh, better or worse at exercise? Oh, that's an interesting question. It's both. So it's very tied to socioeconomic status. So people who are wealthy are getting better, and people who are struggling to make ends meet and have two jobs and have to commute, they're getting worse. So we want to work this problem from both ends. For it's another example of, of, of inequality in, in terms of, you know, because most of the determinants of health are, are economic and social, and it's a big problem. So is there a, a very good form of exercise? Is there a bad form of exercise? <laughs> well, I think the most important thing is to do something, and because something's better than nothing. And um, but if you really wanted to to be kind of sensible about it, you should kind of mix. Cardio is the bedrock of exercise, but you shouldn't avoid strength training. And as you get older, strength becomes more important. It's just good to mix it up. Mix it up. Should we all be fidgeting more? Well, fidgeting actually turns out to be pretty genetic, so it's kind of hard to fidget if you don't naturally do it. But fidgeting is is a good way to to burn calories. So if you're if you're trying to prevent weight gain or trying to get a little weight loss, fidgeting can be helpful, but but you know, there's probably not much you can do about it. So relax about it. Relax about your or fidget fidgeting. about it if you're a master fidgeter as, <laughs> as I am because yeah. I've tell you if there were a championship, I'd be right up there. I can fidget. Yeah, I'm, I can I'm de- a fidgeter too. I can definitely out fidget a horse. 
Is there an especially weird study you've gotten involved in? Oh, gosh. I'm sure there have. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, it depends on your, your lens. Um, <laughs> one of my uh, favorite studies is that we did a study on why humans have such big butts. We stuck a lot of electrodes in people's rear ends. That was fun. Um, and um, uh, recently, we have a paper that just came out uh, just a few days ago on how our arms keep our heads still. Which is kind of a really fun, a fun story. Uh, I believe that. I interviewed um, Maurice Green, who was at one time the world's fastest human, so-called 100 meters. And I asked him, why do you guys all get so built up on your upper body, their arms? And he looked at me like, dude, you can only run as fast as you pump your arms. That's right, but this is about head stabilization. So upper, so sprinters have to have really big upper bodies for pumping their arms, partly because of angular momentum, right? Think about it, right? If you're a sprinter and you're in the air and one leg is going forward really fast and the other leg is going backwards really fast, that creates angular momentum. It's going to turn your body. You're going to and you rotate, need to counter yeah. that. And you can only do that with your upper body. So you have to, but you don't want to rotate your upper body too much because you're a sprinter. You want to keep that rigid. You can't fire a cannon from a canoe, right? You want to keep your upper body rigid. So you want to pump your arms opposite to create reverse angular momentum. And that's why sprinters have to have these big muscular upper bodies. But what I'm talking about is when you hit the ground, your, your, your head wants to pitch forward. And, but just before your head hits the ground, we've shown that there's a little muscle in your neck called the cleidocranial trapezius that turns on and it links the mass of your arm to the mass of your head. And your arm weighs about the same as your head. So just as your head wants to pitch forward, your arm accelerates down. It's connected by this linkage to your head and it pulls your head back just with the right amount of force at the right amount of, at the right time. Isn't that cool? That is cool. All right, if you had to pick a different academic field, if you're not going to do studying running and head muscles and... No more biomechanics so, for you. Yeah, what would you... What would you have been geologist why is that i just love doing field work i like time and old things so i was really interested in geology i was going to be a geology major when i got to, to college and got deviated by the theory of evolution and human evolution but I, I, i'm sure i would have loved being a geologist oh it's so cool uh, dan thank you so much our guest today has been dr daniel lieberman he is a professor of human evolutionary biology at harvard his book is exercised why something we never evolved to do is healthy and rewarding. So remember, when it comes to knowing when to sweat, when to relax, science rules. If you like science rules, of course, I hope you do. Please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps us learn what people want to hear about on the show. It helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Be sure to look at all my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question to askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huckins and this very same Corey S. Powell. Yeah. Frank Olson mixed this episode. Casey Halford composed our original theme. Josephine Martorano is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, Corey Bill, science, science rules. Stitcher. Human nature can get a little messy, but nature nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh generation laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula. For when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea, totally. 
definitely not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of 7th Generation. Find 7th Generation laundry detergent and fresh lavender and other scents at 7thGeneration.com.